The nail in the coffin! Welcome to a special weekend edition of The Nail in the Coffin, an impromptu edition, if you will. Shocking developments with the Cavs. David Blatt is out as the head coach. Tyrone Liu is in. Uh, I am Tom Valentino, joined as always by Travis Uli. We are recording on Saturday afternoon, a little less than 24 hours ago, Trav. I was floored to find out that the Cavs had fired David Blatt, and now after reading all of the hit pieces that have come out, uh, since that news broke. Honestly, I got to tell you, I'm kind of shocked that they were able to make it to 30 and 11 with everything going on behind the scenes. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it shocked probably everybody. It seemed like it's, it's just sort of a hard move to really justify considering where the team's at. Um, as a fan, you're looking and you're saying, Hey, yeah, we've, we've taken a couple lumps lately, particularly that Golden State game, but Overall, they're thirty and eleven. They're coming off of the finals. Um, it's. I have to think that it's that this has never happened before. A coach coming off of the finals, and I know that I saw a coach has never been fired while in first place in the conference this late yeah, season. That was the stat um, I was going to tell you. Is is the NBA went to conferences in nineteen seventy, and this is the first time that a coach who was in first place in his conference had gotten fired. Yeah, I mean his. His record's 83 and 40. And if you consider that when he started the season last year, um, they had that really awkward, bad run through the first half of the season last year. Well, I want to say, were they 19 and 20? 19 and 20. So, so, so since then, he's gone what, 60, 64 and 20. Um, it's an outrageously which, good number. Yeah. That's, that's an incredibly good number. And truthfully if if he doesn't have job security for where he was um there's not many guys in the league that do really um i guess when you're when you're cleveland and you have lebron and you've made all these moves and you're spending this much um the expectations are justifiably incredibly high but i think what probably prompted the move and i don't know if you'll disagree with this but i think they they see a very small window uh for the, the roster and the lineup that they have right now, and they're not going to provide much much leeway or time to figure things out. A few things. Number one, I think it's really important to keep in mind that the coach he or the team he ended up getting to coach was not at all the team that he was hired to coach. Oh, don't, don't forget that when he was hired, LeBron was not here yet. Kevin Love was not here yet. They were planning on drafting Andrew Wiggins. And the plan at that point was to roll with a young team that was going to be based around Kyrie Irving, Andrew Wiggins, Tristan Thompson. And Deion Deion Waiters. God, that feels like a million years ago now. So the situation, and they were going to take time, and it was going to be a building process with a a much longer-term picture in place. And as soon as LeBron announced he was coming back to town, the timeline for everything just radically shifted. And the it other sort of thing raises the question. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, no, no. I, I want to ask here: is, Do you think back when they hired Blatt originally that they had no idea they were going to have a chance at LeBron? And if if they didn't, 
why not? If they did, why would they not have waited to hire a coach? There, there were, um, God, there were so many stories I read, um, in, in the last 24 hours or so. And I think it was the one put out on ESPN.com by Brian Winhurst and Dave McMenamin that said that they really didn't think LeBron was coming back here. They, they didn't think that was a realistic option. They were in the process of putting the full court press on Gordon Hayward to be their big free agent signing at small forward. And they, it didn't really enter into their minds that they were going to have a realistic shot at LeBron. Now, whether or not you believe that is totally up to you. Um, but a, another part of that article had talked about how LeBron's camp was even shocked that they would go ahead and hire Blatt before LeBron announced where he was going because they felt that they would have had a lot more leverage to influence who was going to come in and coach next. And that obviously wasn't going to happen once they hire a coach and two or three weeks later, LeBron announces he's here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that it all turned out, you, it's, it's hard to believe for me, like that they were completely, you know, resolved with the fact that LeBron wasn't going to come back. Um, that doesn't seem like something that is going to catch the team 100% off guard. Um, yeah, I mean, seems, you just look at like if, if he had been thinking about it, someone from someone in his camp would have at least sent the Cavs a feeler like, hey, he's entertaining the idea. Don't get too excited. Don't get too high about it. Don't like expect it. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. And they could have acted accordingly at that point. Yeah. Well, the other thing to keep in mind about that that whole situation and the way that hiring went down, don't forget that when Blatt was hired, number one, that was a uh, a Dan Gilbert call above everybody else from the sounds of it. Uh, it sounds like that wasn't totally a, uh, a unified decision across uh, the front office, but um, Dan Gilbert was really high on getting somebody outside the box and really was impressed with Blatt's credentials from when he coached overseas. And the other thing there that's really worth noting now was that there were two finalists for that job. Blatt was one, and Tyrone Liu was the other. And Liu ends up becoming the associate head coach, so the lead assistant. I can't remember a situation ever anywhere else where the guy who beats out uh, the other finalist for a job ends up taking that guy on as his lead assistant. Didn't they also look at Alvin Gentry? He was also in the mix. I don't think he was. I thought they had it down to. I thought they had it down to three, and he was the other one. Yeah, he was definitely in the mix. So, still though, Lou was the, uh, the basically finished the, by all accounts in second place in the running for that job. So it seemed right. like they might have been hedging their bets here right from the get go. Here's a question: Is um, is Tyron Lue going to have to hear for the next six months about what a rookie head coach he is? Because <laughs> he actually is a rookie head coach. Um, but I have a hunch that's not going to come up all that much. Probably not. not. As much as it did for Blatt last year. Yeah, and I think that will probably not be nearly as much of an issue just because even though he hasn't been a head coach before, he has been around the NBA. He had a pretty good reputation as a, a role player. He was a solid reserve. And he has certainly paid his dues working his way up the coaching ranks in the NBA as an assistant with several teams. And he's worked under a lot of really good coaches 
uh, prior to coming to Cleveland. So, and honest to God, I, I think had David Blatt worked a, at least a year or two as an assistant somewhere in the NBA, he wouldn't have gotten nearly the scrutiny that he did coming in and getting a head coaching job as his first job at the NBA either. So do you, so you think um, like a handful of years as an assistant in the NBA is, is more prepares you better than, than, I don't know, what was it? 15 years as a, a top tier head coach overseas. Yes. Really? Yeah, I really do. Just because I think the NBA is such a different animal. And a lot of what you heard about Blatt's undoing was it sounded like, I mean, the reputation he had was for being this tough, hard-nosed coach. Um, I mean, there's that famous YouTube clip uh, of him in, in the huddle the one time as he was trying to drop a play and somebody, one of his players was talking to him and he just stops what he's doing right in the middle of it and yells at the player, shut the fuck up. Fantastic. (laughs) And it's like, I got news for you. I don't think you ever saw him do that to LeBron or Kyrie or Kevin Love. And really that, uh, as you read some of these articles that have come out since then, one of the biggest uh, sticking points with a lot of the players on the roster was that he went out of his way to not criticize those top players and finally, at one point, it was Lou who had to stand up in a film session and start getting on LeBron's case for not getting back on defense or, or missing an assignment. And there was another instance where David Griffin, the general manager, was sitting in on a film session and was noticing glaring things that were not being called out by Blatt on film that were uh, mistakes being made by some of the top players. And he even jumped in. And I think it was getting on LeBron's case about something. And LeBron took it in stride. And, and Blatt was not willing to do that. And I think he always was very mindful of the fact that he didn't want to step on certain guys' toes because he felt like that was going to be um, his one-way ticket out of town. Was He was afraid of getting on their bad side. And instead, I think it hurt him in trying to build respect within the locker room. At least that's the, port- the portrait that's being... Um, painted by everybody that's covered the team. Because that's the other thing. As, as shocked as we were by this firing from the outside, everybody that actually covers the team on a daily basis really didn't seem that surprised by any of what happened yesterday, which to me is just amazing given where they are in the standings right now. Yeah, and I think probably if you look at the I mean, recent, uh, the recent games, because they have had, I mean, in the last three weeks now they played golden state twice and san antonio once um and lost or four weeks i guess starting at christmas um and lost all three of those in in different fashion each time um and haven't just looked like a consistent team at any point i think after each of those games it was like well you know maybe the first time it was well maybe Kyrie, you know when he gets back and gets his legs underneath him and then when it was San Antonio, it was, oh, well, we played him in San Antonio. Maybe when we get him at home. And then we finally got a game at home, and that was far and away the worst performance we've seen from them. It was like, well, maybe something's actually wrong here. Like, maybe something does need to be changed. And we, I'm not sure why everyone jumped to players instead of coaches. Um, but you didn't hear anyone calling for blast firing, but a lot of people were calling for love to be traded. And... That's, I mean, in hindsight, that's that's fairly interesting, I think, um, because when in the NBA do you ever hear of a top tier perennial player being traded instead of a coach getting fired? Two things with that. Number one, one of the tweets that came out in the 
chaos yesterday that totally blew my mind, and I think it almost got overlooked. Brian Windhurst talked to several players on the team shortly after the news broke, and he said that several of the players told him that when they were brought in for a team meeting, they thought they were being brought in to be told that Kevin Love had gotten traded. Really? Yeah. I which mi- I missed that. That just blew my mind. Like, and I just, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so clearly, I think that speaks to how he's viewed on the team right now. And I think that's definitely a huge red flag. And really, to that point, just listening to everything that David Griffin said during his press conference yesterday, I wouldn't be totally shocked if this isn't the only move that comes down, especially between now and the trade deadline. I don't think we're out of the woods in terms of Kevin Love being here or being traded for the rest of the the rest of the year. The trade deadline, I think, is February 18th. It's always like uh, late in the week after All-Star weekend. The All-Star game's on Valentine's Day this year, the 14th, and I think it's that Thursday afterwards. So you always get a lot of conversation at the at the All-Star break. All the front office people are there mingling and whatnot, and a lot of trades end up going down in those few days after. So um, very possible that we could still see something um, that week, possibly even sooner. I mean, Griffin didn't wait until the trade deadline last year to start wheeling and dealing. And he really kind of saved the season with those big moves that he made in the middle of January. So, you know, I I think earlier on this year, I just said no way anybody or any of the big pieces, especially are going anywhere this season um, during the year. Let's let the whole season play out and see how the finals play out. Assuming that the Cavs get there and then reassess after the year's over. Now, Based on what we heard yesterday, I really think anything's possible. So I saw some tweet from someone yesterday, and I apologize, I can't remember who it was, because literally everyone who knows anything or talks about the NBA ever was tweeting frantically. Um, But someone said uh, that Blatt was talking to, I don't know if it was family or someone, like people close to him, but not at all really connected to the Cavs and said he, he was pretty confident. It was either a Kevin Love or him situation. Oh, it was Peter um, Vesey, the okay. uh, NBA reporter from New York. Yeah. There you go. Okay. And to me, that sort of, that sort of indicates that um, my hunch is that uh, Griffin and, and, and them are confident with the roster that they have in place and they just don't think it was being coached correctly. So I think if you're going to, if, if, if that's the stance you're taking, and I personally, I think they're, they're right. We've had that discussion. I think we, we, you and I, I think are in agreement that Kevin Love has a place on this team Yeah, and you're better with him than without him. Um, obviously that depends on what you can get, but I think, if you look at the tea leaves and see what's out there in the trade market, you're not going to get proper value back for them. No. Um, so I think my hunch is that they're, they're resolved to that. They're happy with that. They like the roster that they have in place and they're going to give Lou a chance with it. I think it would be a bit crazy if they were to cut him off three weeks, <laughs> three weeks into his reign and take love away from him and make him try to figure something else out. Um, I think the instability that this already adds is enough. Um, I think trying to overhaul the roster, um, or I don't know if you would consider moving love and overhaul. I think I would, but um, I, I don't know that that puts you, I think that puts you in a, a more precarious position um, and on less solid ground, I think. Moving him would absolutely radically reshape the 
um, the the dynamic of the team and and the way they play and the way their lineup looks. Absolutely, I I'm with you in that. I don't think, and the reason I was talking so much about when the trade deadline is, I don't think they would do anything immediately. I think the next they it would be fair and it would probably be the smart move to at least see what it looks like with with Lou running the show. And I know during the shoot around this morning, one of the first things that he said tactically that's going to look different is that they're going to try to get Kevin Love the ball more at the elbow and in the post. And anybody who watched a lot of his games at Minnesota will tell you that one of the most effective ways to use him was getting him the ball at the elbow, which is something that the Cavs almost never did in the past year and a half. So clearly it seems like they have a plan in place for how they want to try to use him. That said, at the same time, I also think that if they don't get any kind of returns and things don't start looking better and they feel like they need to do something else, that's the next move that gets made. Let's be fair, though, here. How much better can things really look? How much better do they expect them to play? I mean, Love's looked pretty good the last couple games since that Golden State game. Um, Obviously, their record is very good. They have the third-best record in the league. Um, How much better do you expect them to look over the next, I don't know, it's probably, what, eight to ten games between now and the All-Star break and the trade deadline? So... It, it, can you really expect a drastic change immediately? I don't know if it's going to be a night and day difference, but I certainly think there's going to be signs that you can watch for, or especially that the people in the front office can watch for that we might not be privy to. I, I think sure. you're going to see the way the team's responding. I mean, it was pretty disturbing hearing the what um, David Griffin was talking about, how the team seemed miserable even after wins because they knew – that the way that they were playing wasn't really a formula for winning those big games in June. So I think if you get the sense that there's more buy-in and guys are more confident in moving the ball and it, and it doesn't seem like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole every single night that they play, I think you could trust a little bit that you are headed in the right direction. So, um It'll be interesting to see where they go with that. Who's going to coach the East in the All-Star game? It's going to be Lou, assuming that the Cavs don't fall off a cliff or the commissioner decides to step in and and take it from them and give it to the Raptors coach because I think Toronto is the second-place team and they're also coincidentally hosting the All-Star game. Um, But, yeah, I think – one of the NBA writers reached out to the league office yesterday and they said Lou would be eligible to coach the East. It's funny because Steve Kerr won't be eligible to coach the West. Are we sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually just saw it on ESPN not too long ago. Um, So who knows who it'll be there. Yeah. I was kind of, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little disappointed. I was kind of looking forward to Blatt coaching the East all-stars just for the press conference before given (laughs) some of his bombastic statements that he's made and, the uh he's the he's the fighter pilot and uh well i've oh, coached many classic. many great championship teams and won many games throughout the years and i i was really looking forward to seeing what kind of uh, outrageous statement he was going to make at the all-star weekend oh, so it was going to be a good one yeah i think they should still let him coach it yeah that would be hilarious benches lebron at the first first stop and play never puts him back in okay so we're having fun with this but honestly like what happens to him now? 
I mean, he's he's obviously got a contract that he could be paid for. I mean, we certainly know how these things work from all the years of the Browns doing this with um, paying multiple coaches at the same time. Yeah, but got, unlike three right now, yeah, uh, the unlike the Browns situation, I think with Blatt, you have a guy that you just dismissed who absolutely has some value around the league, and I absolutely think there would be other teams wanting to bring him in. Um, I know he was already being talked about for the Brooklyn Nets job. I think the, the Minnesota Timberwolves are probably going to be looking to bring in a new coach after the year. And honestly, I think personally that's where I'd want to see him go just because that's closest to the situation that he was brought in originally for here in Cleveland, right down to the fact that you're building a young nucleus around Andrew Wiggins. And they also have Carl uh, Anthony Towns, who's another great young piece there. Um, I, I would have to imagine he lands as a head coach somewhere else pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota is sort of that team that we thought the Cavs were when they hired him. Or not that we thought they were, but that they actually were when they hired him. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. That that could be a good fit. Who knows how soon um, does he does he end up as an assistant on someone's staff for, to finish out the year? Um, who knows, you know, but... I think you're right. He's definitely a guy who who will be fairly in demand. Um, he's got a pretty good reputation. Seems like people think pretty highly of him. So who knows? I mean, it'd be interesting to see where he ends up. It's kind of funny now if you think he, he took that job with Golden State last year and Steve Kerr let him interview for the Cleveland job. I'm not sure. I don't know if Steve Kerr thought he was actually going to get that job, but um, he let him go interview for it and – well, it turns out that might might have been better if he had just stayed stayed tight in Golden State for a couple of years. He'd probably be he'd probably be their lead assistant. He'd probably he'd probably be in Luke Walton's seat right now. I'm glad um, you brought that up because if you're Golden State right now, do you put in a call to him and reach out to see if he might be interested, even if not as like an assistant? I don't think he's going to come on as an assistant anywhere else this year. Maybe like a consultant, just as a consultant. Year. Exactly right. Yeah, maybe. I don't see why not. I mean, the guy knows basketball. There's no question about it. He's a smart guy. Um, even if his most of his success was overseas, you don't do what he did if you're not a good basketball mind. Um, and obviously, Steve Kerr thought so, um, thought he had some value. You definitely have to think that they could definitely find some, some, some benefit from him. Um, and if they have that relationship and they already know each other fairly well, um, I don't know if they've ever worked together at all in any capacity or if Kerr just kind of hired him based off of reputation interviews and whatnot, but I have to think that, yeah, they could definitely use him. I think there's probably a handful of teams that could, um, like you said, probably not an assistant, not a guy that's at every game sitting on the bench or anything, but a guy who could give you some insight and things like that as a consultant role that could be perfect for him. And if you assume that, if Golden State would make it to the finals, they would almost assuredly be playing the Cavs. I can't think of anybody who would give you a better scouting report on the Cavs uh, roster and strength and weaknesses. Not that Golden State looks like they need it based on the right. way they treated the Cavs the first two times they played this year. But if you're looking for any little extra edge, I, that that guy might know a, a thing or two that could uh, help um, help you out there. Yeah, I mean, you see it in in the NFL all the time where a guy gets released from one team and a week later he's on that that team's rivals practice squad or something um, just because he has that, that little extra insight. He's seen just a little bit more that you don't see on game tape. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think it, it would be sort of a, it'd be kind of a funny like troll move of of Golden State because clearly, like you said, they don't look like a team that really needs that that sort of insight uh, from from an insider, or someone who's seen it up close. But every little bit counts. Yeah, yeah. So I think in most instances, when a coach gets fired, it's kind of hard to envision your team having championship aspirations in the same season. But if there's one silver lining about the NBA being a true players league, it's the one league where I think you can still consider yourself a championship contender. And I did a little bit of digging. This would not be, if the Cavs were to somehow go on and actually win the championship this year, that would not be unprecedented. This has actually happened twice before. In 1981-82, Paul Westhead was the coach of the Lakers, got into a verbal altercation with Magic Johnson in the locker room. Magic demanded a trade. The team's owner, Dr. Jerry Buss, um, was growing tired of Westhead already, fired him, promoted Pat Riley up from the assistant position to be the head coach of the team. They went on that season to win the championship. More recent history, 2005-2006, Stan Van Gundy was coaching Miami. And in mid-December, he quote-unquote resigned to spend more time with his family. Although if you talk to anybody that was actually involved with that, um, he was pushed out the door. I think Shaq even said that uh, in a book that he came out with a couple years after the fact. And lo and behold, it was Pat Riley coming down from the front office to coach that team. And they ended up winning the championship. So... Amazingly, this has already happened twice where teams have fired a coach in season and gone on to win a title. And yeah, I think you're right on. This is 100% a players league. It's not it's not the NFL where changing coaches is going to drastically change scheme or what players have to do or anything like that. It's really just identifying a sort of uh, style of play that, that maximizes your players. And I think we're, despite the Cavs record, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that they weren't maximizing their potential. Um, they weren't playing as well as they should be as a team. So in that vein, I think it does, um, it does make some sense to make a move. I think no matter what, no matter what the reason or logic behind it, 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 it was fairly shocking. It caught most people off guard, but in the long run, you're right. It doesn't disqualify them from having an opportunity to go win a title still. Um, just because at the end of the day, they have three of the top, I don't know, 15 or 20 players on the planet. And that's that's always going to trump most everything else in the NBA. Sure. I think what this is going to do going forward is I think it's going to give those of us on the outside looking in a much clearer idea of just who on the coaching staff was responsible for what. Because one of the things that I think we always knew was that Lou was responsible for the defensive assignments and, and, and setting up the Cavs defense. And they've been statistically one of the best defensive teams in the league. Um, but one of the other things that I thought, and I know that I've talked with uh, our pal Mark Mazaros about quite a bit, is the fact that I think since Blatt and the, this coaching staff have come in, they've been one of the best teams in the league at running plays and getting easy baskets and good looks coming out of timeouts. Mm-hmm. And it was especially glaring in a good way because they were one of the worst teams with that under Mike Brown the year before. I mean, there were how many times could you remember that year where they couldn't even get the ball inbounds at a critical part of the game yep. 
let alone get a good look. And so many times this year where they've come out of a timeout and run a really great play and get an alley-oop or a wide-open three-pointer or any other shot that they really wanted. And I always assume, hey, that's that's David Blatt. And I think it was Winhurst who was saying that he assumed the same thing and he was sitting next to a scout one time and the scout told him after they ran some great inbound play, no, that was something that I saw Boston run under Doc Rivers when Lou was an assistant on that staff. So that was coming from him. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny. I heard a bunch of people on the radio yesterday that not, I guess not a bunch, but a couple people that called in and were like, you know, I've, I've been, I'm, I'm, I think it's a good move or whatever. We've seen in like these big games where the, you know, the defense doesn't adjust at all. They're getting beat, this, that, and the other thing, and they look bad. And just Blatt's not making those defensive adjustments. And then, and then I think they had an – I don't remember who it was, but they had an interview with someone, and he's like, well, uh, Teron Liu actually calls the defensive uh, – calls the defense, so you can blame that on him. If you think this is going to fix that stuff, you're probably wrong. But overall, I mean, I think – how different do you think the team's actually going to look? I think that's the ultimate question here is – what sort of things do you think they will get better at? Well, I think there's going to be two things that we should feel pretty confident that we're going to see based on what we heard from Lou this morning during shoot around. Number one is that we're going to see Kevin Love start getting used in some different ways, especially where he's getting the ball. And hopefully that's going to give him a little bit more confidence and some consistent touches and, and help get him going earlier. Um, so that's one thing I think is definitely going to be different, and hopefully that will improve their offensive efficiency. The other thing that I think we're really going to see different is some different substitution patterns. Um, one of the things that Lou talked about this morning was that he wants to get a pretty consistent 10-man rotation and get Mo Williams back into the mix. Mo's been pretty much persona non grata over the last few weeks, and I know he had the sprained thumb, and then he had, uh, I think, a death in the family, so he missed a couple games for that. So, um, even, but it sounds like, uh, beyond that, he was probably healthy to play and was just a DNP coach's decision. And with Lou running the ship now, they're going to try to find some more consistent minutes for him. Cause that was one of the other things that really did Blatt in besides not being hard enough on his star players was it sounds like he really frustrated a lot of the veterans on the team who were on the bench with inconsistent minutes, um, inconsistent rotations, um, not really communicating very well. Uh, there was talk that Mike Miller got very frustrated last year and he was a good soldier about it and didn't really want to speak out publicly, but he requested a trade after the season because he knew he wasn't going to be getting any sort of consistent playing time here um, under Blatt. Yeah, I think Mo and Andy are probably the two that stick out the most this Those year. two have been really fr- – Richard Jefferson's another one, and, and that one – uh, in that case, really, I think, led to the final undoing was there was some talk that the veterans on the team were really upset with the way that Blatt handled the rotation during the first game with Golden State this year on Christmas Day. Because up to that point, Jefferson and Mo Williams had been getting a lot of minutes. And then when you get to that game, Mo played like two or three minutes, I think, tops. And Jefferson, I'm pretty sure, didn't get into the game at all. And there was no communication to them from Blatt or the coaching staff that they were going to shorten the rotation and treat that like a playoff game all of a sudden. So that lack of communication uh, really hurt him in the, in the locker room, I think. And I think what we're going to see now is 
supposedly, I mean, we'll see how it plays out once the games actually uh, get played, but it sounds like they're going to try to keep a pretty consistent 10-man rotation going. So you're probably looking at a bench in that case with um, Tristan Thompson, uh, Shumpert, Delavadova, uh, Mo Williams, and then I'm guessing Richard Jefferson. And then maybe you'll get James Jones as like the 11th guy in there on some spot duty here and there. So I don't know. I don't, still no Verizal? Probably not. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I think I think probably the biggest thing is if that's the case where he's where he's just changing these rotations and not really talking to anyone. Yeah, that's gonna hurt um, hurt your credibility with your guys. I think the biggest thing they really look for is transparency and just honesty. Like if you go to a guy and say, "Hey, we're gonna try something else tonight. We're gonna shorten up a little bit your minutes. You might not get many minutes tonight, but they know that going into it." Um, I think you you probably have a little more. No one wants to hear, "Hey, you're not going to play." But if they know, "Hey, we're trying this. Um, we didn't forget about you. We're not ignoring you. We don't think you can't help, but we want to see a couple different things. We want to try out some different rotations and things like that." I think that earns you more points by just being um, straightforward with the guy and telling him where you're coming from, as opposed to him figuring it out in the fourth quarter when he hasn't gotten called up yet. Yeah, and getting back to what you had asked me earlier about would. Blatt have been better off coming into the league as an assistant. I think that's a situation where that would have been the case because handling personnel the way he did, I think, worked a lot better overseas, where the coach gets coaches. A, coaches have coaches are the are the leaders there. Yeah, well, the NBA, the superstars. It's a lot more about managing shots. egos, and right. it's not just the star players' egos. It's it's the role player egos and the veterans who have been through it. Yeah, the guy who was an all-star six, seven years ago, but still has a place in the league like a Richard Jefferson. Exactly. And yeah, I think, and if that's the case, that's that's sort of on Blatt. That's not stuff you or I have any visibility into or fans do, obviously, um, because we're not in the locker room. We see the team for three hours a night occasionally, and that's it. Um, but I think if that is the case and Griffin like yesterday I was I was much more annoyed with it I think than I am today and that's sort of been my MO lately with anything <laughs> that happens in sports I think because I'm a little more confused and frustrated immediately and then I kind of come down and start to just try to put the more positive spin on things but um with if if Griffin is able to identify this and and he he's very confident with his uh like with this move and he thinks this is the right move good on him for making for making it now because it's not an easy call to make at this point in the season with where they are a couple things first i am totally with you in that i was way more flabbergasted by this at this point yesterday than i am right now and i think it speaks to the fact that there was way more going on behind the scenes than had been let on publicly and now that all those nasty stories are coming out, it makes you a lot more understanding of why they needed to do what they did. And it's it's crazy. I think in a lot of ways it's unprecedented. But at least once you get the full story of what was going on um, in the locker room and in practice and on the bench during games, and you start to hear all of those stories coming out, it makes a lot more sense. And second of all, with David Griffin... I'm gonna I'm gonna trust his judgment because I can't think of a move that he has made since he took over as general manager of the team that hindsight being 2020 makes me say 
Well, shit, I wish he didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, if you look his at his track record's been year, really that, good. That one big trade from last year specifically stands out. And I think at the time, everyone was like, uh, J.R. Smith and this guy with the high top who no, none of us really know anything about and this foreign Russian guy. Um, okay, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And obviously, it worked magnificently. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with the exception of, was he the one that drafted Bennett? No. No? Okay. All right. Well, then I guess... <laughs> no, I that guess, was Chris uh, Grant. And, and as I, I think I I tweeted to somebody uh, about that draft pick, I said, drafting Anthony Bennett first overall, even in a bad draft, is the kind of thing that gets a general manager fired. Oh. <laughs> and, and probably not going to get another opportunity like that for quite some time. Yeah. But, no, I think, yeah... I'm with you on that. I think, and uh, he's around the team a lot too. It sounds like he's even more hands-on than even other general managers and in front office people with other teams. That it seems just the, the inkling that I got in reading the way that a lot of the beat writers describe his role at the team. Like he's sitting in on film sessions, he's traveling with the team on the road trips, and he is very hands-on and has a really good pulse of the team. And I think when he said yesterday. I didn't need to call, consult with LeBron or any other player. He, I trust the fact that he didn't actually do that because he didn't have to because he's around all the time and he could put two and two together on his own. Right. I think though that's that's sort of a sort of a misleading quote. I think I think it's his way of sort of saying, um, "I call. I, this is my decision. I'm the only one that does this." While we both know that if he got an indication that LeBron would not like that move, it wouldn't have happened. Exactly. I think there's there's a difference between saying, well, I didn't need to, you know, LeBron didn't call for this, or I didn't need to consult this. And there's a difference between that and um, I didn't need to consult LeBron because I knew what LeBron wanted. Or I knew that LeBron would be okay with this. Um it's a little disingenuous to me to sort of say LeBron doesn't run this team because there's not a move that Griffin would make if he thought it would upset LeBron. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. But again, I think it goes to the, the notion that he stays involved and he's in tune with what his players want. And yeah, the buck obviously stops with LeBron and he's the most important guy in the franchise. But again, I, I think it's just really important to keep in mind that it wasn't like everybody else in the locker room loved David Blatt and LeBron was this one guy who sure. was unhappy with them and single-handedly torpedoed him. It, it really sounds like, by all accounts, this was a, a locker room-wide deal. I think the one, it'll be interesting. Obviously, he's not a main piece, but he's a, he's a big part of the team is J.R. Smith. And you heard, you've heard J.R. Smith many times talk about um, how much he loved Blatt and how you know how Blatt took a chance on him and has given him the sort of like leadership that he that he that he needed, and so that's good. It, you wonder if it's going to actually impact Jr. a lot because I think we both agree that Jr. probably is going to be a big part of this team if they're going to have success. Um, yeah, whether he stays in the starting lineup or he gets shifted to that second unit like he did down the stretch last year. Uh, he's going to play a vital role, you would have to think. Oh, no question. No question. And who knows? I guess the one the one other point that I guess I'll bring up and, and sort of 
gauge you on if if this was the feeling that they got if this was sort of the vibe that Black gave them and they thought he just wasn't the right guy for the team why wouldn't they have made this move in the offseason because I have a hunch that it didn't it didn't just pop up recently why don't why do we think they didn't let him go in the offseason and and put Lou in from the start of the season I don't honestly I don't I really don't have a good answer for that because based on everything that we've read that's come out in the past day or so it certainly seems like they had a, to go back to last year they, yeah, a lot of the stuff that was held against him was stuff from last year and it certainly seems like if they wanted to make a move they'd have had the ammunition to do that in the off season and when they sure. didn't I think that was why at the beginning of the year once they had Kevin Love sign long-term and once they had Tristan Thompson sign under contract and they had basically all the core pieces signed and it seemed that Blatt had survived all the turbulence from the first year. I really thought this year was going to be really nice to sit back and just uh, enjoy basketball and not have to worry about all the off-court drama. (laughs) So much for that. 41 games in, here we are. Yep, halfway through the season and that's out the window. Oh, unbelievable. But, no, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Do you think um, Do you think around the league this this potentially hurts uh, hurts Teron Lou's reputation at all? Like, do you think he'll maybe get that sort of – I mean, you always see, like, when, when situations like this happen, it, it almost seems like the assistant guy that comes in as the head coach sort of gets that reputation as, I don't know, like a snake or a backstabber. Do you think there's any risk – uh, for Lou of that, of some of this maybe being where future coaches don't trust him to be on their staff. Hard to say. I mean, I, I think ultimately his fate's going to be sealed by what they do now going forward with him running the show. Um, if he's successful here, he won't have to worry about, being he's never going to have to worry about getting hired anywhere sure. else. Cause he ain't going anywhere. And if he flames out, it, it, I think it's going to be that he was handed a great opportunity albeit with very high expectations and, and he wasn't going to be able to get the job done. And I think that'll be held on uh, or that'll be held against them more than anything else. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, my, my first inclination was, Hey, if, if this doesn't work, he, he, I don't know that coaches are going to trust him to be on their staff in the future. If he needs to go back to being a, an assistant for a couple of years, but I mean, who knows? Time will tell on that one. Um, but I guess it's just at this point, it's wait and see. It's it's kind of interesting that the first, I think at least that the first game he'll be coaching is against probably our biggest rival. I think obviously we're more of a, more of equals with, I mean, we can't even really call ourselves equals, but we're more right up there with Golden State and San Antonio in terms of our expectations and um, overall record and performance so far. But I think Chicago's probably our biggest just because we play them so often and we sort of have that that I don't know relationship with them as a team where they just don't seem a lot, to like lot of history much. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I'm not sure if I'm wording it correctly, but you look at the series last year it was pretty chippy. Um and historically that's how it's been with us. Yeah, it was Chicago, the only team so. that put up a fight in the Eastern Conference against us last year. Right, exactly. So I think it'll be interesting to see what they come out with tonight. You you have to hope that they they come out aggressive and they're I don't know if, if they'll be disappointed by what happened yesterday and if it'll it'll bring them down at all or what. Who knows? But it'll be a good game to watch, I think. It should be entertaining. And you, if you have to hope that if they're making adjustments, they start tonight. I don't know what it says, 
about the, uh, the, the betting public's confidence or lack thereof in Blatt, but I'm fairly certain that the line for that game tonight has not moved at all since this news broke. Um, I'm not sure if there's that much to read into it, honestly. I don't know. what. what is, do you know what the line is by any chance? I've got ten and a half right now. Whoa. That's... <laughs> That seems like a lot to me. Um, for those that don't know, uh, gambling lines in the NBA, ten and a half is is a pretty significant amount for two teams who, you know, are, are legitimate playoff teams. I mean, I don't think anyone is confusing the Bulls right now to be on the same level as the Cavs, but they're one of the the better second tier teams in the East. Um, ten and a half's a lot. The fact that it started that high is sort of surprising in and of itself. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. It's a crazy topic. I'm glad we were able to hop on and talk about it for a minute, but it's sort of one of those things like, hey, hurry up and wait now. Just yeah. see what happens. Got to wonder how long the leash is, how much leeway they give Lou with his current roster. If they try to make moves, who knows? We'll find out. That'll be the next three weeks, and then hopefully after the All-Star break, we can just focus on the playoffs and what, what the end of the season is going to bring. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, <laughs> Never a dull yeah. moment in Cleveland. Not in Cleveland, of course not. Yeah, um, Hugh Jackson, already not the long, not the shortest tenured coach in Cleveland anymore. It's insane. It is pretty nuts. <laughs> All right. A um, couple notes as we get out of here. First, uh, special thanks to our significant others, as uh, if, just for being understanding as we had to put this together on short notice. Um, weekends. Saturday afternoon isn't always the most available time. No, it's not. So shout out to the ladies. Uh, big thank you. Uh, second one, a reminder for everybody out there listening, you can always subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher. And all of our episodes are available on our website, thenailpodcast.com. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at The Nail Podcast. Um, we'll be getting back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, midweek this week. Uh, got a pretty cool guest lined up, uh, so that should be a lot of fun. Stay tuned. And, uh, yeah, I think that will do it. So for Travis Hewley, I am Tom Valentino, and we will talk to you again soon. Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.